The Institute will engage with its key stakeholders, the European institutions, including the European Parliament, the Commission and other European agencies, such as the Fundamental Rights Agency, Eurofund, EU, OHSA, as well as relevant agencies in the Justice and Home Affairs Cluster and the Member States to take advantage of synergies. Well, in case you understood what I said, congrats, you really understand Euro-English. If not, even better, because then this episode will be even more interesting for you. So welcome to another episode of EU Untangled, um, the podcast in which we try to explain EU politics and policy in simple terms. Um, in this summer edition of EU Untangled, uh, I'm joined, as always, by my brilliant co-host Harper, joining from Iceland. Hello. And Victor, from joining from Belgium. Hey. I'm Alex, and I'm recording in Berlin, in Germany. When you're listening to this episode, you're hopefully at the beach somewhere or in the mountains or you just take off some some days so you enjoy your time. And so we, we decided not to bother you with some complicated policy-heavy discussion. And so we decided to, to talk about how people talk in Brussels or in the EU bubble, which people call Euro-English, Euro-speak or Euro-jargon. And the great thing is that All three of us have been working in uh, the European institutions at a at some point in time, and even better, my two co-hosts Victor and Harpa are originally not even from the EU. So I have this brilliant outside perspective. So when when you came to Brussels, maybe I start with you, Harpa. Mm -hmm. Did you understand what people were talking about? <laughs> Not at all. I'm a bit ashamed to admit this, but uh, yeah, I was working in the commission and I was there, you know, as an expert in a specific field. So, of course, I understood the content of my specific uh, field of expertise. But when it came to everything related to the EU and the the jargon used, both technical jargon, but then also just words, convoluted words that are used again and again and again, um, in texts, uh, I was a bit surprised and I found that I had to adjust a little bit my writing style and my speaking style to match these institutions because the terminology that was typically used was a, a little bit different from what I was used to. Do you think it was more more convoluted than in, uh, in Iceland? Yeah, I think so. I think people are a bit more to the point in Iceland. Also, our culture is very informal. Um, there's not really a lot of hierarchy. Of course, there are formalities in public policy and in, and in politics. But I, I feel like people are a bit more straight to the point in most cases. And uh, one of the words that you mentioned there in the beginning was one of those first words that I was like, huh, this is popping up everywhere. And that was synergies. Everything synergies. is about the synergies. <laughs> and I mean, I understood what the word meant, but I sometimes jokingly say that is the first word that I learned um, in Euro English because it, it made me stop and say, like, why are people always using this word? And it's all about the synergies, baby. Vic, after five years of Brussels, do you know what synergies means? I, I think so, yeah. I think it means everything and nothing at the same time. So... <laughs> Uh, that's worrying, actually, because it just speaks to how much I've probably integrated, <laughs> to what extent I've uh, managed to 
integrate myself in the EU mm -hmm. bubble um, here in Brussels. Um, so yeah, it's probably one of my go-to words uh, nowadays, synergies. I feel like everybody shares that word and I'm happy to share the happiness. Yeah. Indeed. Or the vagueness. Yeah, and I also find now sometimes that I use synergies a lot. Um, it's a nice way to say something that sounds nice while at the same time not saying anything at all. You can just throw a, throw a synergies on top of whatever it is that you're writing and it makes it sound like you know exactly what you're talking about. I also find myself fostering things a bit more now and facilitating them. So instead of just saying, I want to do this, I will say, I want to foster this or facilitate the emergence of this it's just and i'm trying to unwi so, unwind that a little bit now but yeah I, I've, so that's how you that's how you create value harpa when you go around via these synergies that you helped to put in a structural framework <laughs> i suppose indeed indeed <laughs> very good I, I have to say i'm very happy to be part of this high level group yeah. that we have today yes. you know I feel like it's quite fit for purpose, if you allow oh, me. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, it's fit for purpose indeed. Uh, extremely relevant stakeholders at the table here today. Uh, I mean, the consultations are important for citizen engagement. Exactly. So, yeah. 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 yeah, which must we, we, we must boost. Yeah. Yes, we definitely need to boost it and also you know, demonstrate more clearly the relevance of the information and the proposals that we make uh, during these recordings. Indeed. I feel like at the end of the day, the vision is to have a much more inclusive Inclusive, Europe. inclusive, and also in regards to our stakeholders, the listeners, uh, maximize outreach. Yeah. <laughs> Present them with an attractive uh, <laughs> podcast environment. Indeed. indeed. Yeah, well... Yeah, that's guys. You're already amazing because you already just like had a two, three minutes Euro speak, <laughs> Euro jargon, Euro English, however you want to call it, like live session. Um, mm. So you know, it has so become our, second nature to me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh god. <laughs> so so whenever whenever we're gonna talk about something weird in this episode and someone doesn't understand anything, that's basically. That's that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe to give a bit of background for those who are not who are maybe tuning in from anywhere in the world, be it in the EU, be it outside the EU, and maybe also not so familiar with, of course, European policy making. Like what is interesting in Brussels, it's of course it's probably the uni one one of the only places where twenty seven countries make policies together. And then we have 24 languages. So, and most of them speak uh, English. Some speak also French and a few German and many Italians. But the, the, the lingua franca, again, a, a jargon, like the, the, the working language in the EU is, of course, English. And, but we don't, no one speaks real British English or American English. We all use like what we can. So this is, of course, one layer that a lot of people are not native. And then the second layer is though, and maybe you can, maybe you have your own a view about that but my impression is that since it's also a bubble is rather far away from kind of like the the media circus in maybe in berlin or in paris um because a lot of people are experts in brussels and uh, people experts talk to experts sure we have some journalists but even the people that read the, the the media outlets are often experts so experts talks to experts read about experts in the end it's a super technocratic environment and let's say the job we want to do in this podcast is to open up a bit to citizens that are 
not so familiar with that, you know, to people that are not familiar with that language and also with the topics, you know, that's, that's not really happening so much in Brussels. And that, for me at least, was, is maybe one reason why this became a bit like a, like this, uh, biotope mm. of like interesting wording, wrongly used English words, and then also special words, you know, like synergies. Exactly. Mm. I would, I would even, I would even go on to say that probably, British people themselves living in Brussels don't speak British English anymore. I mean, they do have the accent and of course they uh, speak perfect English, but when they are in the EU bubble, I feel that they have to adjust yeah. to the kind of English that is spoken in the corridors of any of the major EU institutions, mm -hmm. the, the parliament, the commission, the council. Yeah. Um, Or all, all the NGOs and other institutions and like, you know. Exactly. Like there, it, it's, it's a shared language where on the one hand, as you said, you have like all these legal, very technical terms. On the other hand, you have uh, 27, probably more, like a lot more, like probably uh, three dozen different nationalities trying to communicate in, in a language that is not their own. And, and finally, you have the complexity of EU policy and politics that is anyways always to an extent uh, monotonous or some, dare say, boring, mm -hmm. right? In, in whichever country you are, be it Mexico, Germany, Iceland, yeah, even sure. the United mm -hmm. States. Yeah. So altogether, it's like the perfect recipe for uh, jargonese. Yeah. And the EU, uh, I mean, the Commission and the EU institutions, they, they recognize this. They recognize this as an issue that when they are trying to communicate or their staff is trying to communicate with the outside world, they don't do it as clearly uh, as they should. And this can, of course, create problems and citizens find themselves a little bit distant. I mean, it's already an issue that citizens find themselves to be a bit distant from the EU. But then when, you know, they go online and they want to search up a policy or information about something, they just enter these very convoluted texts, uh, very technical documents. And in many cases, they don't find any practical, straight to the point information that is just targeting the average mm -hmm. citizen. And when I was uh, working in the commission, They offered, uh, it was DigiCom, which is, I suppose, Directorate General for Communications. Um, they invited us to do a seminar where they were taking real examples of our own written text and putting it, putting awesome. it on the screen. And I saw texts there that I had actually worked on with some colleagues. And they were just saying, I found this on, you know, this website. Read this text. Isn't this awful? I mean... And they were just showing us how to, um, how you would be able to write clearly and taking this Euro English that has sort of mutated a little bit into a bit of a, a bit of a monster, if you will, and showing us, you know, remember, this is how you write. This is clear writing. And yeah. there is just to give you an example, because they have, you know, issued, um, like brochures and guidelines to help staff do this and, These are very useful because they give real practical examples of texts that have been published and then they give you an alternative. So you can start to unwind a little bit uh, the Euro English. I found one example that I think is so telling. Um, and so they, they give an example. It is unadvisable to be in control of a moving vehicle when suffering from fatigue. So instead of writing that, you can just write, you should not drive if you are tired. 
So this is the kind of stuff that uh, we should pay attention to. And I think also just for us personally, something that we can do as well, because maybe when we are trying to interpret some EU texts and documents and policies, maybe we slip into the jargon instead of just saying, okay, so basically this is what it means. Yeah, but you you just mentioned something, um, interpreting. So you just mentioned... Uh, how hard this makes it for people to interpret what texts published by the EU institutions um, mean. Um, sometimes I wonder if to an extent this is done on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making it uh, vague to a certain extent or making it convoluted mm-hmm. precisely to give room for interpretation. Yeah. Because if anyone were ever to challenge what is written in a text, then you would have different avenues, right? Like you are not as constrained as if you were to say things to the mm-hmm. point. Um, so in, in this case, it provides you with some flexibility. So you shift uh, some potential blame from you. Yeah, indeed. I mean, answering an email, you always have two options. For example, somebody says, you know, when will this be published? You know, the the answer to this inquiry or whatever. You can say, I will publish it tomorrow, but then you've already, you know, painted your, committed yourself. You have committed yourself. You can also say, mm-hmm. we are assessing the situation with our services and we'll get back to you um, at a feasible time or, you know... <laughs> Once this as soon once as this process has been concluded or something like that, then all of a sudden you you don't know is it is it two days is it two weeks is it two years? Well, this it can be helpful to shift blame no. a little bit and not create expectations. Also, when you don't know because we've covered many times like this whole process, twenty seven member states and and you know all of these institutions and trialogues and you know, communications and directives and action plans and work programs. Like this is very complicated stuff. And sometimes things take longer than expected, Uh, unexpected things pop up. So maybe the culture that emerges from that also where you're always trying to achieve a consensus with very different people and stakeholders at the table, it makes sense to just be a bit vague not be so direct because then you can sort of facilitate or move on progress with things. Uh, yeah, I think you make a good mm. point here because I also would like to kind of like be clear about one thing that, of course, technical terms cannot be avoided, so to say, even in Brussels because we have technical terms everywhere. You go to any capital and then you have technical terms in policymaking in everywhere. You have mm-hmm. technical terms in every subfield of society, mm-hmm. you know. So that's 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 okay. So if you talk about an action plan or a trial log or even the word cohesion, so to say, mm-hmm. it's it's fine to use that, but you know, it's not fine it's not okay to use it just like to cover up something, to mm-hmm. say nothing with it. If you start to use uh, like wordy uh, language and also wordy words, so to say, mm-hmm. uh, to to cover up and not to say anything, then I think it it becomes actually it is more than just like oh it's not good it's actually also like a fundamental problem mm-hmm. and um, yeah. and it, it is of course it is and i think it is very true that maybe brussels is maybe more uh, prone to that problem because you have so many different interests you know mm-hmm. it is just much more complicated interest wise than other capitals in this world yeah 
No, not you don't have to balance oh, yeah. not only the parliament and the co and the and the government, the, the 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 employees and the companies, but you have this everything times twenty seven. Mm -hmm. And then so whenever so someone says something, you have to be very careful not to step on someone's yeah toes. Yeah, uh, uh, what what I find, um, well, I have wondered sometimes uh, how complicated. Uh, this must be for official translators. So oh, yeah. in the EU, you mentioned at the beginning, Alex, uh, the lingua franca uh, is English. Uh, but actually, you have three official working languages. So you have English, you have French, you have German that can be used for official communication. But once any kind of act or legislation is published, it has to be translated into all 24 languages of the European Union. And that's where I... Or websites, for instance, like the websites mm -hmm. of the different departments of the European Commission, which are called DGs because they stand for Directorate Generals. They also, in theory, should be in all the languages, official languages of the European Union. And I can only imagine how many resources go into translating these things and how confusing it must be oftentimes for translators to actually get the real meaning of these mm -hmm. words because some of them might not even exist in other yeah. languages or some of them have been directly taken from Italian, French or German into English mm -hmm. um, and adapted to uh, the kind of situation that you're trying to describe in these very specific settings mm -hmm. where your peers can understand but probably very few people can in the outside world. So this also, you know, at the end of the day makes it very inaccessible to the regular citizen yeah. quite often actually i have i have read for example on twitter by by british uh, by british nationals journalists mostly you know asking on twitter what does framework means for example well, how do you how do you kind of like mm -hmm. it, it, it sounds english it is probably also an english word i guess it's maybe there's a meaning in english for that as well but people don't use that I think outside Brussels that much. Mm -hmm. And then pe people come here and, you know, they have really like a hard time to understand and translations, you know, they're natives and they're like, okay, what is this word? What does it mean? And, and then, mm. it, and then it is used also this particular word and it's used in a way of, yeah, saying not really much. Yeah. I, for um, me, so. I mean, I'm struggling <laughs> with this personally myself now every day at work because I still, even though I'm no longer working for the EU, I'm still working with EU policies. And every day I'm trying to translate concepts, uh, texts from the EU into Icelandic uh, to present and explain and, so, uh, you know, uh, yeah. discuss issues with, you know, Icelandic stakeholders. And I mean, like words like flagship program. I mean, when I try to translate this, oh. it, it sounds insane. So I, I have to typically, I can never directly translate anything that comes from the EU. Yeah. I just have to say like, The EU is working on, and then I just really explain what exactly it is. I try not to use any of the terms because it's so difficult to translate them. Mm. And many of these words definitely do not exist in Icelandic. Yeah. 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 If I can share like a, like, like a short, um, anecdote from my side, uh, I worked uh, as a consultant for, for some time. And then I remember how when I joined the consultancy, uh, some of my colleagues thought I would have an edge when it came to calling or engaging in a conversation with the uh, Spanish speakers within the EU bubble. Um, and I very quickly realized that I had absolutely no edge, zero edge, because if I try to speak with them in Spanish, which is their mother tongue, my mother tongue, I mean, of course, mine comes from Mexico. There's uh, most of the time is from Spain. 
Um, I mean, it's essentially the same language. So the thing is, every time I would pick up the phone and call uh, a so-called stakeholder, you know, whose native uh, tongue was also Spanish, I would find it really, really difficult to communicate what I was trying to say um, in a clear and ordered way because I couldn't translate yeah. a lot of the expressions and concepts like a flagship <laughs> that you just mentioned. And then if you talk about, for instance, uh, the EU recovery and resilience facility or, yeah. uh, you know, the European Green Deal, like I have to take, you know, a, a second to think how do I say that in a coherent way in Spanish? Yeah. And what is actually the official way of calling those programs or initiatives um, at the European mm -hmm. level? I honestly don't know. So I, so what I ended up doing was still call them and then pretend that I didn't speak Spanish. Oh. Yeah. Like I, I would not engage with them in Spanish. I would engage with them in English because yeah. that was the easiest way for me, just keeping the terms the way that they were originally conceived, yeah. Yeah. period. Oh, God, I, I would want to do that as well because sometimes when I'm giving like a presentation and trying to explain these things in Icelandic, I mean, I sound like a five-year-old. I'm like really struggling to make myself clear. It's getting a bit better now, but like, you know, these terms are so specific and difficult to translate. So... It would be easier if we just like, let's just erase all the languages and let's just make Euro speak the global lingua franca. No, I'm, oh God, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm obviously kidding. <laughs> let's not, let's not wrap up. On no, that. No, 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 no. But, but maybe, maybe, I mean, we now have discussed already like the difficulties. We also have kind of like try to, um, see a bit like where it came from. Um, uh, you know, probably a bit laziness and also at some point, but also in other parts, probably uh, just like being cautious about something. Um, do you feel that that really is also maybe a fundamental harm? I I, I was, I said, uh, I saw this like discussion on, on Euronews actually a bit older and, and they were arguing, one was arguing, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for, for populists to call out the EU and say, Brussels takes away our jobs. You mm -hmm. know, that's, that's, that's like, wrong on many on many levels but it's easy to understand you know mm -hmm. brussels doesn't do anything and probably it's, it's the eu and even then who exactly yeah. so you you, you they break people break it down on petitions break it down to very simple terms and simple language when it comes to attacking the eu mm -hmm. for maybe good reasons bad reasons but the eu can only mm -hmm. answer Oh yes, we have uh, we have uh, received uh, criticism from, or we have received an opinion of one of our member states uh, politicians, and we will look into the answer, blah blah blah, yeah. and we respect everything. Yeah. And our answer cognizant is cognizant of the complexity of the issue exactly. at hand. So I'm, we will reply. So Victor, you're <laughs> you, you are better in manner. you're better in uh, in stand up Euro speak. Yeah. Is is it oh, is it is it some how sad. <laughs> is that some do, do you think it's an issue or do i do i see that too negatively no i think i think it might definitely be an issue and i think you only have to look to brexit i mean how yeah. was the how was the public dialogue there i mean bureaucrats explaining what is the benefit of you know multilateral cooperation and internal markets da 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 and you know the leave party now i can't remember what they're called again what what's the name of the Uh, Nigel Farage uh, um, and uh, you, um, UKIP. No, UKIP, UKIP yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the UKIPs, they were just like, give us back our money to take care of sick people. Stop stealing our money, EU. We will put it into the NHS. Like, 
and they put this on buses and drove this around London, you know, and it's it's a very simple message. It's the wrong message. It was not accurate. It has been debunked. And but it's something that, you know, it's like Donald Trump, you know, build a wall. I mean, the Democrats are talking about comprehensive immigration reforms to facilitate, you know, the emergence of a digital economy, blah, blah, blah. And Donald Trump is just like, build the wall. And people are like, build the wall. And these are simple messages that capture the imagination, whilst the others just seem to be blah, 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 and not doing anything really. Mm. Well, um, can I just say that that build the wall sounded pretty good? No, what did it <laughs> to you? I mean, pretty good, as in like it sounded like pretty bad, but like it was. Uh, I, I felt compelled by it. Like I, I was almost shouting myself, <laughs> like, "Yeah, build the wall!" <laughs> um, very encouraging. <laughs> no, but you you make an excellent point. Uh, I, I, I but I don't think this is the fault of Eurospeak mm. as such. I think rather Eurospeak. Well, this would be my position. I think Eurospeak reflects the complexity of the European mm-hmm. Union. I think the European Union is a complex creature. Mm-hmm. So you have many different layers. You have a lot of different stakeholders. The European Union, because of the way that it was built, uh, tries uh, and fails and tries and sometimes succeeds, but always tries to incorporate as many voices and stakeholders as possible. And therefore, the processes are super long, they're tedious, they're complex, uh, they're boring, uh, if you will. Um, And of course, the way that you communicate complex things, the easiest way to communicate a complex issue is using a complex language. So you actually have to really think about it. You have to understand the issue at hand extremely well so you can break it down into its simplest parts. And I think that's a challenge anywhere, but especially so in a place like the European Union. I agree with Victor that you, that, you know, that is, that, that is complex, but still I feel sometimes there's also a lot of laziness and not actually really having the balls maybe all sometimes to, to really do the step forward yeah. and to say things simple, you know, uh, because but do you think, do, do you think this might be more because all these so-called eurocrats, uh, which is also a unique word. I love it. Yeah. Um, bureaucrat, but you know, from the European Union, so eurocrat, um, self-explanatory, of course. Um, like, do you think it's because all these eurocrats don't really get the chance that often to speak to normal people like because it's a bubble right that's That's what it's called it's called the eu bubble so they're always talking either to each other or to journalists that i mean what they do is uh basically report on your speak all the time or um or or they talk to uh ngos that are fighting for issues that um are, are a matter of the european union and so basically, they're just speaking to to their peers who speak the same language. So in a sense, they, they never really face the need to go ahead and, and, and talk to a normal person living in a normal town in France or Portugal or uh, Latvia, right? Like they, they don't have to translate these complex things for them ever. So for them, it's perfectly fine, you know, like they keep it at this so-called high level. And it's fine because... It works for now. But I think that the, yeah, yeah, no, but just to say like the hallmark, sometimes I feel like the hallmark of true expertise uh, and mastery of your whatever area it is that you're working in 
is how well you manage to maintain that connection to the normal citizen. And if you are a true expert in something, you should be able to explain just the basics of it without resorting to any technical jargon. Um, and I feel like simply put, I mean, it is a very complex thing, the EU. And I mean, I understand that you have to use complex language sometimes to explain complex issues. But it, when it comes to the voters, it's not that complicated to explain what's in it for you. What is mm. the value of your country being a member of the EU? But people sometimes, I feel like they don't explain it or they take for granted that people understand terms like mobility or internal market or, you know, these things like you should just really say, you know, you are an individual and living in the EU creates a more peaceful society. You have more opportunities. You can benefit from all of these rights, which are, you know, sought after, you know, well, across the world. Mm. I don't know, but I, I yeah. just explaining it in very simple terms, I think would help. And many of these policies, because I've seen for example, a publication that talks about um, EU policy sometimes, they explain what has been happening and they do it in a quite a traditional sense. But then they put like, why is this important? Mm. And then they put like three, four sentences there and they summarize it for, you know, somebody who's not an expert yeah. in it, but you can explain why should you care about this? And, it, and nobody's yeah. telling people why they should care about this. People are just talking about GDP and technical things and you lose touch with the average citizen. And then they start to see the EU as this supranational multilateral monster that is just making their mm. lives a living hell. And, you know, fake news like, oh, the EU is going to ban, you know, bacon flavored crisps and all of this stupid stuff that Boris Johnson said. I mean, this gets to flourish, not because it's true, but because it is said in the same way as normal people speak. I mean, that's why people wanted yeah. to vote for Donald Trump, not because they, okay, maybe to an extent they, they were in favor of his policies and there are a lot of complex issues that can explain wh why he was eventually voted. But I think most people said, like, he speaks like a normal person. He's not trying to sound smart. <laughs> maybe because he just right. isn't smart, but that was a huge selling point for him. Yeah. He's, the, he's just yeah. tell it as it is. And people are like, finally, yeah. somebody just an average Joe that is talking about things as they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a most powerful tool of any populist for good or bad that they connect with people in a way that they can understand with the average citizen. You were just mentioning though, this UKIP's, uh, campaign, mm -hmm. uh, when Brexit was happening and that, that made me think as well of, uh, how I think the EU tried to respond to it with this, like, uh, coffee a day campaign i don't remember what it was called but basically they were saying like oh okay is the eu so expensive well not really like how much does it cost uh, to the to each eu citizen and then they start putting out like this message saying um i think uh the eu costs less than a cup of coffee a day to each eu citizen which is less than one euro of course depends and then you know media outlets like political stars saying like well it really depends where you get your coffee in the eu mm. you know if you buy your coffee in uh, luxembourg is not as expensive it's a lot more expensive than buying it in portugal so but i think that was an interesting comeback yeah. you know uh, i think that was ingenious it was understandable and of course it's not perfect uh, because this kind of uh 
things are not done every day, but um, yeah. yeah, of course, it takes creativity, it takes money, probably, and um, yeah. But in, yeah, it's just in defense of the EU, I have to say that I think that you know, in the last like ten years or so, they have paid much more close attention to this issue. Of they've gotten they've better. gotten much better, and they have realized also the value i mean in making things fun and engaging which is a jargon but you know colorful some humor like you can discuss serious topics you can convey important messages to citizens and you can do it in a yeah. fun way of course and the best example is dg meme the director <laughs> general for <laughs> memes and what is it sober fun i mean uh, uh Man, like that is genius. Of course, it's not an initiative of the European Commission, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but but the funny thing is that European Commission and parliamentary officials they follow their account because it's fun, yeah. you know. And in a very sober way, uh, yet fun way, they manage to you know attract attention to EU policy and politics exactly. without being too disrespectful. So I, I find that yeah. amazing. I don't know how many times like DG Meme has brought to some important issue to my attention that otherwise I would not have been aware of. I think we should bring DG Meme to oh, the pod. God, yes. Like we have to have them on an episode and and just uh, you know get some good banter. Although I had said before that um, that is important that the message is, is not too complicated, but at the same time, I think it also would be the wrong consequence to use a populistic language in the institutions or in general in Brussels to to do politics. I think this would not be the way. So even although we maybe sounded a bit like, you know, use simple language, but also don't use populistic language at all. I think that would, wouldn't be the right the right answer either. Um, so you don't fight fire with fire I hope our listeners now understand or not understand what your speak is uh, I hope you had as much fun as we did and um, have a nice summer well, merry yeah. summer thanks for listening and uh, adios In the event you utterly enjoyed the content of this production, we would be grateful if you follow us on a digital application, including, but not limited to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other app that the digital single market offers. Also, of crucial importance, we encourage you to contribute to the ongoing public consultation on the quality of our podcast by co-creating a rating, along with other stakeholders, via a digital infrastructure of your choice, and to enhance the inclusiveness and diversity of our group of beneficiaries by supporting our public outreach efforts. And of course, we urge you to engage with us via our outreach instruments. You can do so by following us on the digital platforms Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. On Twitter, you find us under the handle EU underscore Untangled, and on Facebook and Instagram under the handle EU dot Untangled. In case you would like to submit any other contributions, we look forward to hearing back from you on untangled at podworld.org or on our website, podworld.org slash Untangled. Best regards. Sincerely yours. All the best. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So I just, just want to say, so it's perfectly clear to everyone. So the point of this exercise right now, this press release, is responding to a perfectly simple, dull question 
in the most convoluted possible way using as many Eurospeak expressions as we can. Yes. Is it a right. competition? Okay. Do we win something? Absolutely. Do you ever do anything without no. competing? Like just for, for kicks or for free? No. no, Harpa. Of course a competition. I'm in it to win it. Okay. So Alex, your question. What is your favorite Spice Girl? In order to address the inquiry, which is considered to be relevant and reflecting a pressing need for a more data-driven and inclusive decision-making process in emerging, emerging priority EU domain of spice value rankings, I have engaged <laughs> with a range of stakeholders in order to exchange best practices in the assessment of vital spicy criteria. The baby, sporty, ginger, scary, and posh spices result in a number of synergies which foster both a considerable portion of fun as well as a significant amount of girl power. The Spice Girls Institution demonstrates both resilience, inclusion, mobility, and diversity, with each actor contributing critical infrastructure necessary for the enhancement of girl power in the local, national, EU, and global perspective. However, The public consultation, in addition to the impact assessment carried out, concluded that Ginger Spice is most iconic and therefore considered as my current favorite Spice Girl. Wow. <laughs> Holy smoke. <laughs> Pretty good. Ginger Spice. I can't believe you, Harpa. Ginger Spice. <laughs> yeah, I think Harpa, you should run, run the European uh, institutions. Yeah. <laughs> You have mastered it. You you can officially be recruited by DJ Meme. I I would support DJ Meme. DJ Meme, if you're hiring, there's an Icelandic fan girl out here ready to contribute to your meaningful work. <laughs> All right. So, Alex, uh, do you want to take the next next pressing question? Sure. Alex, how do you make your famous cheesecake? We welcome the opportunity to discuss this timely and relevant topic and propose a new policy framework regarding the optimal production of this food-related challenge. When it comes to the most efficient policy mix, we endorse a fair and just proportion of the relevant ingredients based on stakeholder consultations. The synergies and cohesions between dairy and plant-based products enable, enable us to ensure an optimal outcome and enables a, play, a, a level playing field regarding the European single market. We are confident that this policy will satisfy the needs of the European consumers in the sector of the cheesecake production and consumption <laughs> while respecting the principle of subsidiarity. Oh, my God. Holy well shit. done, wow. Alex. Man, you should be a speechwriter. That was dude, amazing. In the European Commission. That was that perfect. That was amazing. That was perfect. Yeah, the icing on the Indeed. cake. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Well, not 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 sure. This is actually a like this. Comp not sure how to take this compliment though. <laughs> <laughs> you're. Yeah, I don't know how to make your cheesecake. You're very anyways. good at bullshitting. No. So I think that is a that is a compliment uh, if you're trying to. Uh, no. Uh, it, it is a <laughs> it is a compliment, Alex. All right. All my respect yes, to you. It was you. very cr creative. Um, um Victor. Vic, yeah. Uh, go ahead. Oh, do you want me to ask him the question? Well, yeah. Victor. I need Victor. My What is yes. your go-to drink on a hot summer day? I, as a staunch supporter of mixed drinks, am privileged to take <laughs> part in this trialogue and share with you and other stakeholders in the audience some key insights on my preferred summer mix, the April Spritz. The reasons are manifold. On the one hand, the synergies created between the April and the Prosecco provide for a unique taste, further compounded by a dash of mineral water. 
This is amplified by an enabling warm weather environment in which the needs of consumers are clearly met via the generous addition of ice cubes to a user-friendly glass, as envisioned by its founders. To fully harness its potential, a slice of orange is recommended, as established in the Spritz guidelines of Northeast Italy. As regards its looks, its looks, the proactive orange color builds upon the festive spirit of a warm, sunny day, fostering well-being, encouraging merriness, and boosting excitement. Furthermore, this innovative B2C model, which is a result of, in, of co-creation, provides for cross-sectoral and cross-border exchanges between a multiplicity of stakeholders, from those working in the European institutions to NGOs, the private sector, and the larger international community. Against this backdrop, I firmly believe Spritz is the backbone drink of any European summer. Shit. I lost, man. <laughs> oh, God, that was so good. Uh, uh, oh, God, now I want a Spritz. Me too. I want, I want Spritz, cheesecake, while we listen to uh, Spice Up Your Life. <laughs> Sounds like a delightful mix. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Bye. Cheers.